birthday of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, would have been 93 years old today. Today's topic is a knock at midnight for a Russia-U.S. presidential dialogue based on Lyndon LaRouche's conception of strategic defense. Now, we of the LaRouche organization have declared that this year, 2022, would be the year of Lyndon LaRouche. He would have been 100 years ago, 100 years old today, uh, this, this year. Uh, but this day, 37 years ago, uh, the Schiller Institute was the first organization in America to celebrate uh, the first uh, national uh, birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King in the sense that it had been declared a legal holiday, um, but uh, celebrations were not actually planned uh, until a year later. Uh, that is, it was declared a legal holiday by President Ronald Reagan in 1984, and on January 15th, 37 years ago, we held a demonstration in Washington of 10,000 persons uh, who assembled. Very cold day that day. We're very happy to have been able to do that. And several of Dr. King's uh, associates, such as Amelia Boynton Robinson of Selma and others attended. Reverend Wade Watts, also from Oklahoma, uh, these people spoke. Uh, Marion Barry, had, uh, who's then the mayor, had a declaration, and even George Wallace actually had made a declaration that day uh, in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King. But the demonstrators that day had a particular slogan that excited many and infuriated others. And it said, we have a dream, feed Africa and build the beam. And the beam referred to the idea of defensive beam weapons. Uh, it was a policy that had been actually adopted by the Reagan administration on March 23rd, 1983 a policy that had been written by Lyndon LaRouche uh, and was the idea of superseding the, the then crazy and now crazy idea of mutual and assured destruction through thermonuclear weapons. That policy had gotten a certain amount of traction, but the idea of the policy was still not really understood in America. It was not merely a question of using laser weapons uh, uh, as a way of uh, knocking out uh, nuclear weapons in their boost phase. It was not the idea only. The idea was to uh, use the advanced technologies that now existed and were coming from that, uh, uh, that process in the workplace and to revolutionize American manufacturing and mining and even agriculture uh, as a part of a kind of general technological revolution that would be made and would supersede uh, the, the need to go to war with people for poverty for, uh, for uh, resources, uh, oil or other resources or strategic minerals and so on. What we're going to do today, therefore, is start off by playing you a, an excerpt from another uh, address that Lyndon LaRouche gave. It was actually in the year 2000. And he talked at that time about a, a circumstance that most people to this day don't even understand. It's well illustrated by him and well discussed by him. Uh, this address was uh, called at the time Storm Over Asia Take Two. It referred to the fact that a year earlier, Lyndon LaRouche had made a, a long uh, uh, sort of uh, video analysis of the strategic situation. We think it's particularly pertinent today to play this because of the circumstances that we've entered in this past week in the discussions um, between the United States and Russia, between Russia and NATO, 
uh, and uh, we need something else now, clearly based on the nearly disastrous uh, non-outcome of those uh, discussions, uh, we need to listen again to the wise words of Lyndon LaRouche. And so we're going to play this and then we'll have a uh, discussion among two panelists, Mike Billington and Ray McGovern, subsequently. On the 12th of October, a Saturday, August rather, a Saturday, a Russian major vessel, a submarine, the Kursk, was sunk in the Barents Sea. Some hours later, the location of the sunken submarine was located, and in the following hours, the president of Russia, President Vladimir Putin, telephoned the president of the United States, Bill Clinton. They met by phone. There were discussions with the respective military groups, advisors on both sides. The two presidents discussed, and thermonuclear World War III was avoided. That's the fact of the matter, the essential fact. Now, this situation, which still continues, a continued and escalating threat of thermonuclear and other war now spreading about the planet, is a condition which I addressed a little more than 11 months ago in a film which was produced in this country in October of last year, and just to see the beginning of it at this point. seeing is a war in the North Caucasus region on southern Russia. What you're also seeing is a war which is broken out simultaneously in the border between Pakistan and India. The forces behind these attacks on Russia and on India are the same. They are a mercenary force which was first set into motion by policies adopted at a trilateral commission meeting in Kyoto, Japan in 1975. It policies originally of Brzezinski and his number two man there, Samuel P. Huntington. The policies which were continued by then uh, trilateral commission member, that is back in 1975, George Bush, before he became vice president. These are policies which were continued by George Bush as vice president. This is under Bush, this was became known as the Iran-Contra drug finance link operations of mercenaries deployed with private funding 
all over the world, recruited from Islamic and other countries, and targeting Russia's flank. This mercenary force That's it, just the beginning. But the, I did, in that film, I did not, of course, indicate the sinking of the Kursk. And though I did, the crisis associated with the sinking of the Kursk, which if Bush had been president, or George W. Bush Jr. had been president, would probably have led immediately to World War III. So obviously you don't want George Bush for president at this time under those conditions. But what I forecast was a condition which already existed, a condition which in the later part of the films I indicated would continue, has continued, would worsen, had worsened, and we are still headed toward some kind of catastrophe which could be world, thermonuclear World War III or something equally bad. And there are things which are equally bad. The point is that what has happened that now was the inevitable consequence of policies to which I referred then. Policies which have a deep root in U.S. foreign policy from the 1970s. These were the policies of the Carter administration. These were the Bush policies of the Reagan administration. On, as far as Bush was uh, running part of the show then. These were the policies of the Bush administration. These have been the policies of the United States government under the Clinton uh, and Gore administration. Continued. Clinton may have objected to this. Clinton may have acted this recently to prevent this from becoming an aggravated cr uh, crisis in conjunction with uh, President Vladimir Putin, but Clinton has done nothing to lessen the danger of this global warfare. If Gore were to become president or Bush, war or similar kinds of global catastrophe would be inevitable. That's the problem we face because the pro policy structure which is in place in the United States and in generally in the world today, ensures a drive of civilization toward a collapse worse on a global scale than the new dark age which struck Europe during the middle of the 14th century. Now, contrary to some people, you don't bet on wars. You don't go to your bookie and say, I want to make a bet on whether war breaks out or not. War is not an event. A condition like the sinking of the Kursk is not an isolated event. It was, this was not an incident. There was not a Kursk incident that provoked a crisis. There was a crisis in which the sinking of the Kursk occurred, a strategic crisis. There was a response to the crisis. There was a response by two presidents, that of Russia and the United States, to the, to the accentuation of the crisis associated with the sinking of the Kursk. But do not speak of a Kursk incident. History doesn't work that way. World War 
One, for example. World War I began in 1863, 1865. It began after the Battle of Gettysburg, in which it became apparent to people in Europe, including England, that the Confederacy was going to be defeated by the continued determination on the part of the President of the United States to crush and destroy the Confederacy. At that point, the British monarchy, which was then and is now still the mortal enemy of the United States, for reasons I shall explain, the British monarchy had a queen, Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria had a son, who was later known as King Edward VII. Not long after the end of the Civil War, the husband of the Queen died. Queen Victoria, who was not particularly a mental giant or an emotional or moral giant, went into a state of crisis. She went up to, went up to Scotland, had an affair with a man up there, and spent a good deal of the time amusing herself on drugs. The records of the local pharmacy next to the castle up there indicated there were some very strange goings-on at the castle when the Queen was in attendance. Increasingly, when the Queen is in this depraved condition, that's why she was called Queen Victoria, she conquered depravity and made herself the empress of it. But her son, the Prince of Wales, actually acted as the monarch of the British Empire. And the British Empire wished to destroy the United States. But first, realizing they could not conquer the United States by means of war or by civil war, they resorted to other means. And the first means was to isolate and attempt to destroy the United States in its influence globally. Because the success of the United States, not only in defeating the British puppet, the Confederacy, and these were nothing but British puppets. And by launching a great industrial revolution worldwide, which began in the United States in 1861 and reached a high point in 1876, the United States was recognized worldwide as a leading world power, as the most powerful of individual nation states on this planet economically, the most advanced technologically in terms of production of any nation on this planet. And nations began to imitate the United States. From that about 1875-76, Germany, which already had close relations with the United States, began to adopt under Bismarck some of the policies of the United States. And Germany began its great industrial revolution in 1877 modeled upon the United States. In the same period of time, a Russian, Mendeleev, the great Dmitry Mendeleev, the great scientist, also brought back to Russia, with the association with his czar, Alexander II, the attempt to implement the economic policies of the United States in Russia. Similar developments occurred in France, related, different, Japan in the same period adopted the United States as a model for the development of the economy of Japan. A friend of Carey's, the uh, economist who advised Lincoln, 
and who helped to create Lincoln as a political figure, Henry C. Carey, sent his representatives to Japan, E. Peshine Smith, to educate the Japanese imperial circles on how to create an economy. The development of the economy of Japan from that time to the present time as an agro-industrial power is entirely the result of the influence of the United States and the Lincoln legacy upon the economic development of Japan. Other countries joined as well. There was, as a result of this, a revival and a direct influence of the North American model, the model of the Lincoln model, throughout South and Central America. It was during the latter part of the 19th century that most all the progressive forces, economically progressive forces and politically progressive forces in Mexico South to Argentina adopted the United States model, the so-called uh, Carey, uh, Hamilton Carey list model as the policy for national economic development of their country. And that generally continued until 1901, until the assassination of McKinley by the friends of Teddy Roosevelt, then Vice President, sort of the George Bush of that period, who uh, eliminated, changed U.S. policies. So you have an idea here of how Lyndon LaRouche approached thinking about not merely a current event or even current history, but thinking about American history and actions in American history from the standpoint of the long arc. Why is this significant, especially on Martin Luther King Day? King did the same thing, but King was a preacher. King approached things from the standpoint of trying to figure out ways to understand the strategic circumstance that man found himself in, and therefore America found itself in, but from the standpoint of the Bible. Uh, this is a tradition in America which is well known and well practiced. And what we're going to do here is refer to a, the title of our presentation today, which is A Knock at Midnight. And that refers to King's reflections uh, on a, a passage from Luke, from the Bible, which had also been discussed by a prominent evangelist uh, by the name of Dr. D.T. Niles. Uh, and King uh, formulated his own reflections on nuclear war and the danger of nuclear war from this standpoint. Uh, so we begin, we'll show you first the biblical verse. And he said unto them, which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Importunity means his persistence up to the point of annoyance. And I say unto you, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receiveth, and he that seeks, finds, and to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. 
So this was a address uh, that had been given uh, by D.T. Niles. And King was using, the. it was a homily that King was using for his own reflections. And now what I want to do is to uh, say something about that. Uh, in the D.T. Niles, he simply used this. He said, it is midnight in the world today. It is, mid oh, it, it is midnight in the parable. It is also midnight in the world today. The night is so deep that everything has become just an object to be avoided. An obstacle in the dark against which men must take care not to bump. So what Dr. King did with this was something significantly different, but I want to now use that. He says, it is midnight in the parable and it is also midnight in our world today. Uh, man uh, today is experiences a dark darkness so deep that he can hardly see which way to turn. The best minds of our day, the most prophetic voices are saying that today we our, our civilization stands at the midnight of its revolving cycle. It is a dark age and a dark world in which we live. It is midnight in the social order. Within a generation, we have fought two world wars and there is always hovering over us the threat of another one. The deep rumblings of discontent from around our globe are obvious signs of the social disruption of our age. As we look out on the international horizon, we see the nations of the world engaged in a colossal and bitter contest for supremacy, which might easily result in the annihilation of the whole human race. We look out and see that atomic warfare has just begun and bacteriological warfare yet unused. These instruments, weapons are so powerful that a city like Chicago can be wiped off the globe in a matter of seconds. It seems that all of these things may conspire to bring an untimely death to the human family on this globe. So you see how King takes a passage, which is one evangelist's uh, reflections on a biblical text and begins to do something different with it, something different, which is what we will later hear in many of the uh, later sermons of Kings. To, re to return to this, uh, he goes on, he says, it is midnight in the moral order. Midnight is a time when all colors lose their distinctiveness and become merely a dirty shade of gray. All moral principles have lost their distinctions. Nothing is right or wrong absolutely for modern man. It is just a matter of what the majority of the people are doing. Everybody is doing it, so it must be all right. So we have developed a generation of moral cowards. Midnight is a time when everything is relative. Midnight also causes us to feel that nothing is really right but to get by and nothing really wrong but to get caught. And so the idea is to try to think for a minute about how the outlook that King arrived at by means of his reflections in this religious context provided him a way of thinking about matters which were strategic, uh, matters which were critical, 
uh, and matters which were of great importance. We're going to actually later play an excerpt, the actual uh, short excerpt um, from this, uh, not uh, read by, right, by uh, Diane Sayre, who, who's going to read that for us. Uh, so now in the world that we're in as of January 15th, 2022, with what just happened last week, many people are very worried. There's a lot of discussion about the possibilities of what may happen. There's also a lot of hysteria being spread in various uh, media outlets. Uh, there's a certain amount of irresponsible arrogance coming from particularly the United States State Department, which isn't helping. Uh, but what has been done by uh, Helga Sepp LaRouche of the Schiller Institute is that a proposal has been made uh, that there might be a way to in fact create a new higher strategic architecture that the brain dead nato north atlantic treaty organization might be appropriately replaced and she discussed this uh in a webcast this past thursday which we're now going to show you an excerpt from now helga one of the points that you and your husband lyndon larouche made repeatedly is that this whole uh, strategic conflict is shaped by the demands of the City of London and Wall Street, the global financier interests uh, who are insisting on continuing to be able to loot the world, but to do what? To, to prop up their bankrupt financial institutions. On the other side, we have the Belt and Road Initiative, <clears throat> excuse me, the moves toward Eurasian integration obviously it would make sense to scrap this confrontation and look for cooperation but i you've, you've recently raised the whole question of whether or not nato should continue to exist but how how would you look at this today well i mean for germany for example or you know most european countries and even for the united states itself to be in an alliance which, if it comes to war, would mean the extinction of all of its members is not exactly a rational choice. Now, the United States may think that because they are a large island and, you know, that they are many miles away from Europe and the, what they consider the potential theater of war, you know, there may be the illusion, but I think if it comes to war this time, you know, it would it would be a global war, including the United States. For Europe, for Germany, it would mean within the first minutes of the conflict, Germany would cease to exist. So I think what we need is a very serious debate. Does it make sense to be in a military alliance, which if it comes to military conflict, which is what a military alliance should protect against, you know, you cease to exist. I think we should, uh, you know, reflect on that because when the Warsaw Pact dissolved in 91, essentially NATO should have dissolved uh, because it lost its uh, raison d'etre. Um, you know, the enemy was no longer there. Uh, we proposed a peace order at the time in the form of the Eurasian land bridge. But, you know, there was even a period where there was a long consideration to even include Russia into NATO or to change the security alliance in such a way that it would accommodate the new situation. And I think we have now very seriously a situation where we have to replace NATO 
with a new security architecture which guarantees the survival and security interest of all. I mean, if you look in the history of such um, alliances or treaties, one can see very clearly only when the security interest of all was taken into account, did it have a lasting uh, you know, impact on peace. When it was not the case, it led to war. The two most famous examples of this is obviously the Peace of Westphalia, where after about 150 years of religious war in Europe, and more particularly the 30 years of the 30 years war, you know, it was clear that nobody would enjoy the victory if the war would continue because there was, you know, in parts, one third of everything was destroyed. In other areas, half of everything was destroyed, houses, villages, people. So then in the four weeks, uh, four years of the negotiation of the Peace of Westphalia, basically the previously warring parties agreed on principles which would guarantee a durable peace. And, you know, the Peace of Westphalia is still a very important uh, precedent for what we should be doing today. The principles were that for the sake of peace, you have to forgive all what was done by the one side or the other. Um, then the second principle, for the sake of peace, you have to take into account the interest of the other. And that is a very, very important principle because you cannot, you cannot continuously have peace if you ignore blatantly the security interest of one or more of the, uh, of the uh, relevant uh, countries. Now, where it was not considered was famously the Versailles Treaty, where contrary to the reality of what was leading to World War I, Germany was given the guilt, you know, to be the only guilty party. They had to pay enormous war preparations, which the Reichsbank then solved with printing money that led to the hyperinflation that then you had the depression. And then out of all of this, you had the second world war, which was sort of the next chapter, you know, of the first world war. So the Versailles Treaty, you know, is really what people should, should think about, because if you don't take into account the interest of, in that case, Germany, you know, that led to the rise of the Nazis, that led to the right, left street fighting, you know, the total collapse and naturally the economic conditions. So what we need today, therefore, if we consider this, that we need a security architecture which does take into account the interest of everybody. And that it emphatically includes Russia. It emphatically includes China. Um, and therefore, you know, I think that given the fact, um, you know, I believe since a very long time that you can, with this complex mess which we have as a strategic situation, that you cannot take a partial problem and think you can solve it, maybe for a short period of time. But that because we have a collapse of the neoliberal financial system, it's a question of time, you know, we have a hyperinflationary blowout going on right now. Um, you will see enormous disruptions because of the energy price, the food price, we have famines, we are threatened with the danger of social chaos. 
um, you know, so we need a solution which really addresses all of these problems at the same time. And it just happens to be that was what was developed by my late husband, Linda LaRouche for many years is what is still the illusion, uh, the solution. So what we need is a reform, a reorganization of the bankrupt financial system. We have to get rid of this massive speculation, which is hot air in any case. And you know, just because billionaires have become billionaires, that doesn't mean the real economy is not collapsing and many people become poorer and poorer and billions of people are starving. So we need to change that, have a global class legal uh, system, go back to Hamiltonian national banking, and then have a new credit system in the form of a new Bretton Woods. Now that only can be agreed upon on the top level of maybe the G20, maybe that's the gremium we should call on an emergency basis such a reorganization then we need you know the uh, economic cooperation among nations which what is the obvious framework for uh, would be that europe and the united states cooperate with the belt and road initiative um, in the development of Latin America, of uh, those parts of Asia and Europe, which are not yet developed, uh, a reconstruction of the US economy, which is very urgent. The US is in a terrible state of collapse. Uh, the urgent development of, of Africa and Southwest Asia. So there's plenty uh, for these countries to cooperate. And uh, I think it was Jess Freeman who recently said, you know, so what if the Chinese are building railroads? Let American trains uh, use these railways. Uh, if, they, if the Chinese build a highway, let American cars drive over those highways. In other words, you know, just because China has already engaged in the Belt and Road does not mean that other countries should not cooperate. I mean, just think about the enormous problems we have to solve. You know, the development of Africa, the overcoming of the worst humanitarian crisis, not only in Afghanistan, but also in Syria, in Yemen, you know, in Iraq, many, many other countries. So what we should do is we should put the Belt and Road Initiative on the table in the form as we proposed it, namely the new Silk Road becomes the word land bridge, agree with long-term economic cooperation agreements to engage in these projects, which would transform the world, you know, and make it a livable place for, for every country and every person on this planet. And then take that economic cooperation as the basis for a new security architecture, which would not just take care of NATO's interest, but which would include, you know, security guarantees for Russia, China, in every other country. I mean, this is feasible. It's rational. It's, you know, it would, it would solve all problems at the same time. And, you know, the question is, can mankind take a solution which is so obviously needed and, you know, just requires a few people who have a vision, uh, who have the courage to come forward in a, in a moment like this, and um, I think, you know, that is what we should mobilize the population for, because that is the clear alternative 
to the extinction of the civilization. Now, uh, what we're going to do is hear from a couple of people who are going to di uh, discuss this, and that's uh, Ray McGovern, and it's also Mike Billington. I just want to say about Ray, I, hi there, Ray, how you doing? Good. Uh, I, I wrote about you uh, about 11 days ago at uh, top of something I was writing. Former CIA analyst Ray McGovern has insisted that only a metanoia, a 180-degree spiritual bootlegger's turn away from a self-defeating, self-destructive indifference to promoting the general welfare of people all over the world can preserve any nation, including a declining United States. Now, uh, I'm not asking you to take responsibility for my remarks, but I would like to point out that uh, the our art of analysis, of actual evaluation, strategic evaluation, seems to be se severely endangered right now, particularly in the United States. And you're one of the few people that's still practicing it. Um, so uh, I'd like you to start us off, both in terms of responding, both of what, of course, Helga said, but you've been looking at what's been said over the last week, week and a half. And Mike's going to have plenty to say because he's been speaking to a few interesting people on his own. Uh, about these matters. So we're going to make it a little informal. You go ahead and tell us what your own thinking is about these matters, and then we'll hear from Mike and then continue the discussion. Well, Dennis, thank you for the introduction. I, uh, I hope you didn't get too many brickbats thrown at you from describing <laughs> that way. Uh, and I wish I could tell you that we were farther toward metanoia at present than we were back when I used that term. We are inches, inches farther or inches more toward metanoia now. And let me tell you uh, what I think and why I think it. Uh, I should sort of as a, uh, you know, clearness or honesty in advertising say that I, I'm an outlier on this, uh, just as I was an outlier for four years on Russiagate and so forth, but I'm used to that. And just so you know what you're getting. Uh, watching the pronouncements by official Kremlin spokespeople and uh, the down the play from, from uh, these Biden-Putin conversations, and most important, what happened this last week, uh, starting on Monday in Geneva, persuades me that uh, we're on the road to a relaxation of tension, that Putin got a major concession from Mr. Biden, who very cleverly has told his people to play that down, and that talks will continue. I'll say that again. The Russians didn't stomp out of talks. Uh, they didn't invade Ukraine. Uh, they didn't do anything other than to, than to insist on their maximum position. And then Soto Voce saying, well, we got a big commitment here. We're going to reinvent the Intermediate Forces Treaty, the, the INF Treaty, which now, most Americans don't understand this because it happened in 1987. Uh, but what was happening in those days was that the Russians had these 
intermediate and shorter range ballistic missiles are called SS-20s, okay? And we had Pershing twos, the equivalent. And this made the strategic situation incredibly very tentative because instead of 30, 35 minutes warning from an ICBM shootout, you had, what, maybe 14, 15 minutes. I mean, these were bases in Europe, the European part of Russia and Germany and elsewhere. Now, wise statesmen got together and said, this is crazy. We got to limit this. We don't need this. We've already got a, a balance of, of strategic power here, uh, thanks to the anti-ballistic missile treaty of 1972. So we don't need these things. Let's get rid of them. Now, people like me <laughs> kind of said, right, <laughs> right, we're going to get rid of a whole class of very sophisticated ballistic missiles. And they did. One key element there was that it was verifiable. Uh, my friend Scott Ritter, for example, was one of hundreds of US inspectors that, that were there when they blew up these sites, you know, in Russia. So that's possible. Uh, and what happened more recently is not only lamentable, but stupid and reversible. Now, be the first to know that U.S.-Russian talks are in the process or of getting underway to reverse that and to reinstate something like the INF Treaty. Will it be exact? No, it won't. But it will place limits on offensive strike missiles in that part of Europe. Now, how come you're the first to know this? <laughs> well, you're the first to be crazy enough to listen to McGovern. That's, that's, that's the first answer. But the second one is, hey, McGovern has this arcane methodology. You know, it's called media analysis. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's sort of a subdiscipline of political analysis, I suppose. And what he does is he reads stuff one day and the next day he reads stuff the next day and then he figures out what's different. And when Vladimir Putin called Joe Biden and says, look, our negotiators are going to get together in just 12 days, but I need to talk to you now. Biden said, oh, okay. And they talked on the telephone on December 30th this past year. Now, how do we know what eventuated? Well, the Kremlin put out an immediate report and they said, and I'll quote it here because I don't want to misstate it. Joseph Biden emphasized that Washington had no intention of deploying offensive strike weapons in Ukraine. Period. End quote. I'll say it again. Biden emphasized that the U.S. has no intention of deploying offensive strike missiles in Ukraine close quote, period. Now, what about the American side? Well, they didn't really include that in their readout. How about uh, 
Jake Sullivan, I guess he was the senior administration official that briefed all those reporters on background. Well, he said, uh, well, nothing much happened. Uh, um, uh, one, of the, one of the correspondents, one of the reporters says, uh, was there anything at all that we could report? And uh, Sullivan said, uh, not that I can think of, okay. Well, that's a bit dis disingenuous, but it's also clever because he didn't want to give these reporters who had their own access to grind time to criticize what Biden had done. Now, it's a mixed blessing that Americans don't know what Biden had done, but eventually the Mickey, I said the Mickey Matt, the, the, the mainstream media is going to have to deal with it because those negotiations are in train. Now, we know from Wendy Sherman and Ryabkov that they said these, these issues, these arms control issues are gonna be pursued now. Um, and you know, uh, you can't conclude these talks in a week or a month. That's gonna take some time. And, and both sides agree that it's gonna take some time to do this. Um, another straw in the wind, but not really for somebody who follows the media closely, um, Doltenberg, Jens Doltenberg, the head of NATO, who's way out there as the heartliners, who we're gonna, we, our arms are ready for Russia. Okay, what did he say? <laughs> Again, you won't see this reported, but here it is in, what is it, uh, TAS, okay? I mean, Toss in English, reporters can, can read this. He says, uh, concrete possibilities for limits on the missiles Russia and NATO should be, should, should be discussed, but not discussed publicly. He stressed that the Alliance was ready to discuss not only limitations, but a ban on intermediate range missiles, quote, we have clearly expressed our willingness to sit down and discuss these kinds of limitations on different levels, banning all intermediate range weapons, which are a concern in Europe, the Secretary General said. That's Stoltenberg. I mean, <laughs> so it, it, it was missed by the, the Western press. What am I saying here? I'm saying here that if you get through all the propaganda, all the stuff that's sort of boilerplate, okay? The Russians are demanding that Ukraine and Georgia will never become members of NATO. Now, is that a realistic process? Prospect? No. How long does it take a country like that to qualify for membership in NATO? Several years? Maybe decades? Uh, maybe never? Um, so if you're Vladimir Putin, what's more important to you? To get NATO and the US to sign on to an agreement that says, okay, we'll never let Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. When, as Putin points out, Ukraine is already being populated by all kinds of, of uh, arms emplacements. In other words, Putin said, you know, membership in NATO for Ukraine may sort of be a, a distinction without a difference because what they're doing 
right now is moving all kinds of troops and and offensive capabilities into Ukraine. So what I'm saying here is this, that you have to distinguish between the rhetoric, which is no, no Ukraine, no Georgia in NATO, and we NATO, and we Wendy Sherman, and we Blinken and Nodden and Sullivan, we all stood up to those Russians, and we adamantly said, under no circumstances, win. Now, Putin was hardly surprised by that. I think he was a little surprised that he, let's be realistic, that he frightened Joe Biden with the deployment of how many, 100,000 troops near the Ukrainian border and persuaded him that, hey, you had a Cuban missile crisis, which not only bears a resemblance to how we feel now, but it's an exact replica. And guess what, Joe? We're going to react the same way the U.S. did when Khrushchev tried to put those medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba. As an aside, and as an indication of how dangerous this really is, um, Khrushchev did put those medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba. We found them, finally. CIA U-2 found them. But guess what? We never thought they were armed with nuclear warheads. And guess what? They were. We found that out decades later. So just think, if John Kennedy had been more susceptible uh, to the blandishments of our military that wanted to give Russia a bloody nose, well, long story short, we, we might not be here. There's a good chance we wouldn't be here today to discuss these things. Another sort of aside on this is, is simply the fact that here's, here's Putin. Before all his generals and admirals above a certain grade, it's the 21st of December, he's given them the word, right? And he says, this time, this time, we're going to have mutually agreed upon, signed, legally binding documents to, uh, to limit arms. And he looks out. And he sees, I'm guessing here, I wasn't there, right? <laughs> he sees a couple of generals like, yeah, yeah, right, right. Uh, that was really helpful on the ABM treaty, wasn't it? Yeah. Or the INF treaty, yeah. Yeah, well, we had mutually binding international agreements, and, and the Americans just walked out, I mean, without explanation, for God's sake. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tell, tell us more about those mutually uh, binding agreements there, Vlad. And in the, next sent in the next paragraph, Putin says, okay, uh, the U.S. has not given much respect to mutually binding international agreements. And he mentions the INF, and he mentions uh, the ABM. So, you know, it would be nice to get these kind of agreements, but what, what Putin is interested in, what happens on the ground, and they're negotiating on that. And if you don't believe me, or if you don't believe Wendy Sherman, believe uh, Jens Stoltenberg, who is uh, on the far right of the Hawks in NATO. Now, the last thing I'll, I'll say has to do with analysis of uh, what the New York Times puts out. Uh, I'm just becoming aware how warmongering the, the New York Times has always been. I mean, I go back, to, <laughs> I go back a ways. More recently, I go back to weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And of course, the New York Times 
was a main uh, culprit in selling that story. And uh, not only Judy Miller, who did finally get relieved of duty, but a fellow named David Sanger. Uh, uh, he was equally responsible. And I have the book on David Sanger, and I've written about him. But suffice it to say here that in July of 2002, so we're talking, what, 70 months before the war, before the attack, the U.S.-British attack on Iraq, um, Sanger had this article in the New York Times which said no fewer than seven times, seven, okay, times, uh, that there were, as flat fact, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Now, this is what he was instructed to say by his intelligence sources. And it was a very interesting juncture because that's when, of course, Bush and the administration, W. Bush was trying to sell the idea to Congress so that Congress would, in its own stupid way, authorize war. So today we have an article, lead article, in, you know, right, right front on, above the fold, David Sanger. What's he saying? He's saying that my intelligence sources say that the Russians, those dastardly clever Russians, you know what they're planning now? They're planning to infiltrate agents to shoot up other, other Russians so that they can have a pretext, a, a casus belli, a, a reason to attack uh, Ukraine, okay? They are so lusting after some kind of justification to attack Ukraine, <laughs> you keep saying Iraq, sorry, Ukraine, that they will, they'll kill their own uh, Russians there. Isn't, a, how about that, you know? What's the source? What's the same guys you talked to back in 2002? The WMD guys, okay? How do I know that? Well, they're the same unknown sources who, who are reluctant to give their, their names because of the sensitivity of the subject, okay? Now, just in contrast, the Russians have also warned about a false flag justification. And how did they do that? Well, it was this fellow named Sergei Shoigu, who happens to be the Minister of Defense. At the same gathering at which Putin talked to all the top admirals and generals, and what he said was, you know, we know that there are 150 or so Americans, uh, contractors, of course, that are preparing this kind of false flag attack in the area of Ukraine, and that they have sarin gas, which is one of their preferred methods of uh, uh, you know, false flag attacks. So, uh, we have Shoigu identifying himself. He's not an unnamed source of intelligence that's reluctant to give his name for because of the sensitivity itself. No, he's warning right ahead of time. Now, is this significant? It is in a sort of, uh, you know, what's the word? Uh, you know, intelligence uh, playing around thing. Uh, I'm sure that both sides are equally prepared to do just this kind of thing. The operative bottom line for me is simply that Putin is much too clever, uh, is much too restrained and much too 
much a statesman, and I'll say that again, statesman, to get himself involved in attacking Ukraine, much less, much less occupying this basket case. Used to be the breadbasket of Europe. Now it's a basket case, thanks to the coup that we, the United States and other Western intelligence services arranged on the 22nd of February, 2014, aptly called the most blatant coup in history. Why? Because it was advertised. It was advertised on the 4th of February on YouTube. <laughs> Assistant Secretary of State, Victoria Nuland, talking to a, a U.S. Ambassador, Jeffrey Pyatt in, in Kiev and saying, we got it all arranged now. Yats is the guy, incoming prime minister. Uh, tell these other guys to wait in the wings here. And uh, did you talk to Sullivan, Jake Sullivan? Yeah. Okay. What do you say? Oh, good. Uh, Biden is free to come in and solidify this thing and we can glue it together. So Pyatt says, well, what about the EU? They're not going to be. And uh, Victoria Nuland says that I don't want to destroy the the nice tone of this conversation, but she uses the F word. She says, F the EU. Now, was this a, a real conversation? Well, yeah, you have the voices. Um, did they know it was going to be monitored? No. Uh, did, did, did Nuland apologize? She apologized, but only for saying, <laughs> not for arranging the coup, okay, for only saying FDEU. She said, I'm really sorry I said FDEU. I didn't really mean it. Of course, that's exactly what she meant. And that's what they're doing even now. Question is, how long the EU will put up with this kind of thing? Now, I could go on for a while. I probably have out, out less than my welcome, but uh, perhaps uh, more can be said in, in what ensues. Uh, the operative thing that I'd like to leave you with is that right now, uh, many of the uh, leading newspapers, um, that is uh, Wall Street Journal and so forth, uh, are uh, very, very reluctant to mention uh, that discussions will now take place on intermediate range ballistic missiles between the U.S. and Russia. That, did you know? I mean, I ask you, did you know? that Biden promised that we have no plans to deploy offensive strike missiles in Ukraine. Did you know that? No, you didn't know that. Okay. Did you know that the so-called anti-ballistic missile emplacements already completed in Romania and going into Poland now? that they have the same kind of holes that accommodate what Putin calls Tomahawk, Tomahawk, Tomahawk missiles, okay? Now, what's the point there? Tomahawk missiles can easily strike the ICBM force of Russia and destroy the strategic balance. So is this a real concern of Putin? Of course it is. It's been a primary concern for years, and he said so. Right now, he's being heard. That's different. Right now he's being heard and there's a concession on the table from Biden about not doing this in Ukraine. Uh, the discussions will go forward. Uh, I've been accused of being Pollyanna. Uh, 
and uh, I don't don't like that, but I don't mind seeing some progress here. And of course, the the main the main kibosh can be done by what I call the Mickey Mat. Uh, there are very strong strong forces there in the military, industrial, congressional, intelligence, media, academia, think tank complex. You notice there are parts of the government in there, right? Military, congressional, intelligence. But in this case, oddly, it's not the White House. Whew. So the question next couple of weeks is, how soon will it become the White House? Or conversely, how soon will the White House's hopeful position descend under pressure of the Mickey Mat. I'll stop there, and thanks very much for letting me go on this long. Well, thank you very much, Ray, and I think uh, you had a lot to say there that I'm sure Mike is going to have both responses to, and uh, maybe some uh, some questions about too. So, Mike, Mike, of course, for everybody who doesn't know, is Asia desk of EIR, but he's also been spending some time interviewing some interesting people recently, and he's pursuing that as we're doing our best to try to resurrect the, the lost art of evaluations. Uh, so Mike, why don't you go ahead and say whatever you've got to say? Okay, well, uh, thank you, Ray. That was a most, uh, most comprehensive and, uh, and very powerful presentation. Uh, I think you captured the overall idea in a way which is going to maybe shock a lot of people, but I think also wake them up to the fact that uh, uh, you have to look at the world as a whole. People, there's a lot of people very uh, uh, depressed or, or uh, somewhat uh, pessimistic within the United States right now about the idea that everything's lost, our country's going to hell, our, uh, our, our cities are destroyed, the pandemic's out of control, we're, we're threatened with thermonuclear war and so on. But if you're willing to look at the world from the perspective of the world as a whole, uh, as Ray just did, uh, then you have the ability to revive optimism in a population which has been purposely degraded by the media part of Mickey Matt uh, and by our, uh, by our government in many respects, uh, to give them some optimism that there is a way out that in fact, it's, there's a way to stop this descent into a dark age, which clearly we are in. The threat of war, the pandemic, the cultural breakdown, the social disintegration within the United States and most of Western Europe. Uh, but again, if you look at the world as a whole, if you look at who should be our closest allies, Russia and China, then you begin to get the, uh, the sense you can begin to get the sense that what, what we as individuals do at a moment of crisis like this can have a huge, huge impact in the world. So I wanna say a few things about what Helga and Lynn said in the, in the beginning, but let me uh, fill in a few pieces of what Ray McGovern just went through from a few other very prominent and knowledgeable uh, intelligence people. There aren't that many. <laughs> So uh, the few of them that there are have stood for, have stepped forward over the last few days in a way which really does confirm uh, the, the 
perspective that uh, that that Ray just laid out. Um, one of them is a guy named Gilbert uh, Doctorow. Uh, he's um, a long, long time uh, analyst, uh, somebody who's worked in Russia and around Russia for many, many years, uh, as well as on other well other sides of this. He attended the Russian uh, press conference after the meeting with NATO on Wednesday, after the Russian NATO meeting. And when he came out, there was an RT journalist who, who, uh, who talked with him. Uh, and he said that, uh, that there was the reason that, um, the reason that the Russians deployed these forces on the border with Ukraine, uh, it was provoked first by the fact that the US and the British and others were sending modern missiles, modern weapons, not, uh, not ballistic missiles, not intermediate range nuclear missiles, but uh, war fighting missiles, javelin missiles against tanks and, and drones uh, to deliver uh, bombs over the Donbass, that this was happening. And the way Dr. O put it, he said they were concerned that some of the hotheads in Kiev would use this equipment with the mistaken belief that the Western powers would come and defend them militarily if they got into a war with Russia. In order to disprove that to these hotheads in Kiev, they deployed their forces to the border, not with no intent to invade, they've made that very clear, but they wanted to, as, as Dr. O put it, flush out the reality of what nations would come to Ukraine's defense if they were stupid enough to get into a war with Russia. And it worked, one after another. The US, the French, the Germans, others said, no, if there's, if there's a war between Ukraine and Russia, we're not gonna send troops, not one troop, not one soldier, not one boot will be on the ground. Uh, although there are people there training already and there's certain activities, but what they mean is that they're not going to put their full weight into a war with Russia. They're not stupid enough to fight a potentially nuclear war with Russia over Ukraine. And in fact, they said so. They said, if Russia invades Ukraine, we're going to give them the toughest, most uh, never seen before sanctions against them. It's gonna destroy their economy. It's the nuclear option on economic nuclear option and so on and so forth. But all uh, not said was, we're not gonna send any troops. We're not gonna go to war. And that in fact is what happened. Now, uh, another uh, extremely competent uh, analyst on this is a guy named Dmitry Trenin. Uh, he is a Russian who spent 20 some years in the Russian army, or the Soviet army actually at that time. Uh, and then uh, uh, he's now heading the, the, the uh, uh, Carnegie Institute in Moscow. So he went to work in something called the Moscow Institute of Europe and then the NATO Defense College in Rome. Uh, but then he began working with the think tanks here in Washington, Carnegie in particular, and he's now heading the Carnegie Moscow Center. So it's the fellow um, uh, Carnegie Institute in, in Moscow. So he's in Moscow, he's in the center of these ideas. He has a long history in the military. Uh, and he gave an interview to uh, Christina Amapur, this, uh, I won't characterize her, the CNN reporter. I think that's probably enough to indicate her character. Uh, and he, she, of course, was trying to bait him 
uh, and he generally uh, made mincemeat out of her. Uh, she began by quoting the hardline positions that were being stated by Russia and by the U.S. Uh, Russia saying, we absolutely insist on, on, uh, on absolute guarantees, written guarantees. Uh, you must move NATO back to where it was before you expanded. The U.S. was saying, we didn't give an inch. We're going to, uh, we're threatening, we're telling Russia we're going to really destroy them if they dare to uh, invade Ukraine and we're going to do this and that. And we will never say that we cannot expand NATO uh, and so forth. But uh, Trenin said, look, uh, they're talking. Uh, the, uh, this is the beginning. This is not the end. Uh, and when, when you talk about Russia going to war, he said, and I'll read this, he said, Putin is very careful in using military force. In Crimea, not a shot was fired. In Syria, professionals did the fighting with few casualties. Kazakhstan is a victory. And they're beginning to withdraw today, he said, which is true. They stopped, uh, they stopped a Ukraine, a Maidan, from happening in Kazakhstan because they quickly called in the collaborators uh, to uh, make sure that this thing was stopped in its tracks, this color revolution and outside terrorist operation, which uh, tried to burn down uh, the government built, burned down several government buildings, but tried to, to literally create a Maidan and a, and a coup, was crushed. He goes on, this talk of war is on the Western side, not on the Russian side. There's no feeling of impending war uh, in, within Russia over Ukraine. Putin is using the troops as leverage to get the U.S. to listen and to negotiate. And as Ray said, Putin is being heard. Uh, this is a change in the dynamic of European security development. Now, as, as Ray also mentioned, uh, Blinken just today, uh, or yesterday, but we're reporting it today, Blinken and Stoltenberg talked, the two of them talked, and they both concurred indeed, uh, as reported by Ned Price, the spokesman at the State Department. He said that US and both US and NATO are ready to meet again, to pursue, pursue diplomacy and reciprocal dialogue, so this, this is moving forward. And Wendy Sherman, who's the official uh, negotiator in these talks, talked with the head of the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which, if you don't know, it includes Russia. It's really all the nations of Europe. Uh, so she uh, agreed with the current Secretary General, Helga Schmidt, uh, of the OSCE, that this is a, a, for, a forum, a format uh, to continue revitalizing European security dialogue, right, which includes Russia and all the other nations. So this this is moving forward, uh, no question. The uh, Amapur, <laughs> Amapur then uh, quoted the U.S. bluster, and Trenton just said straight out, quote, get beyond the rhetoric. We know Ukraine will not be a NATO member, member soon, maybe never as Ray also said. The simple reason, the U.S. will not fight a nuclear-armed Russia over Ukraine. It is not in the U.S. interest to deploy intermediate-range missiles in Europe since Russia could retaliate by deploying nuclear-armed submarines to patrol the eastern seaboard of the United States. In other words, they could put nuclear weapons, including their hypersonic weapons, which they have and the U.S. doesn't, 
uh, they can put them at the same distance from the U.S. cities as the U.S. would be if they moved their missiles up to the Russian border. Uh, and therefore, it is uh, absolutely not in the U.S. interest to do that kind of thing. Now, one other aspect of this I want to quote. This is back to Mr. Doctorow. Uh, the RT reporter asked him, why now? And Dr. O said, that's a question. Why hasn't the media asked the question, why now? Why didn't Russia do this when they started moving their, their forces, uh, the, the NATO, moving them out, moving them east towards the Russian borders, starting in, I think it was 1999 was the first time. Uh, and uh, Dr. O said, well, it's very clear. You know, Putin gave a now very famous speech in 2007 at the Munich Security Conference. Uh, where he laid out precisely these issues of what is not acceptable to the Russians. Uh, uh, but at that time, the Russian economy was still in very precarious condition, and their military was not up to snuff, to put it nicely. Since that time, uh, Gilbert Doctorow said, they have poured huge amounts of money, of brain power, of scientific and technological capacity into building their military. And they now quite rightly believe they have a military that's the equal, perhaps even in some areas like hypersonic weapons, the superior to the Western military powers. Therefore, they can do it. It, it is no longer the, the, you can't even pretend any longer that the US is the only superpower as we did after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's simply not true. You have China as the by far the biggest and best economy in the world, and you have the Russia-China cooperation on both developing the third world. Russia is uh, building nuclear power plants, and of course the Belt and Road is building nations, getting them out of poverty, getting out of the grip of the IMF World Bank by giving them infrastructure. So uh, they were able to do it because they now have the power to do it. And the U.S. knows that. Uh, people, no matter how much they bluster, they know that they cannot fight a war against Russia, just like they cannot fight a war against China. The only danger, and it's an extreme danger, is that you have some real madmen in the United States. You have Admiral Richard, the head of the Strategic Command, the guy who would actually push the button. Uh, who, who said earlier last year that uh, we used to think nuclear war was unlikely, but now with the rise of Russia and China, it's likely. And this is, this is madness, uh, real madness. And you all, I'm sure, saw Senator Weicker, who, <laughs> who literally is one of the top guys on, on the Senate uh, Armed Service Committee, openly saying we should prepare for a first nuclear strike against uh, against uh, against Russia. Uh, madness. So could madness happen? Could we sleepwalk into a thermonuclear World War III? We have to be on guard. But as Ray said, uh, we have to look for the optimism where it's there because it's our responsibility to push uh, to make that happen that way by making sure the American people do know what the American uh, media is trying so hard to make sure you don't know. Uh, so I want to say a few more words. Um, in a sense, go back to what you heard Lynn say, that uh, 
when you have a crisis like we have today, you have to look at it in the context of an overall global crisis, an incident uh, which is not defined by what happened this week or last week, uh, but uh, as, as a long-term process. And there's, there's no question but that uh, this, um, this, this round of crisis started with the collapse of the Soviet Union when we had a tremendous opportunity where Lynn and Helga said, okay, we've broken the British Empire's division of the world into East versus West, the free world versus the communists and so forth. We've basically ended that. This is an opportunity to bring about a new paradigm for mankind. And they proposed that it be done by building high-speed rail connections between Europe and China through Russia, uh, that we create an environment in which we begin to work together as human beings and as nations, sovereign nations, committed uh, to the idea that our sovereignty depends on the sovereignty of the others, as we had in the Westphalian uh, situation. Uh, so at that time, with the fall of the Soviet Union, the, the, some people, the neocons and others in the West, thought, we just won. We won the war. We won the Cold War. It's like Fukuyama said, Francis Fukuyama, the neocon, who wrote, the end of history. Liberal democracy is now proven to be the superior means of running a nation, and it'll be so from now and henceforth for the rest of time. History is over. We won. Um, and then uh, just last week, Fukuyama uh, looked around <laughs> And he said, I guess I look like a bit of an idiot when people see that I wrote that end of history back there in the 1990s. So he wrote an editorial, and I think it was in the Washington Post, which said, well, you know, I, I guess I missed up some things. It didn't occur to me that, uh, that advanced democracies like the US could collapse. Didn't occur to me. I thought, why, this is permanent. This is the rest of time. And of course, what he sees as the collapse is January 6th, <laughs> January 6th last year, you know, that this was the insurrection was showed that our democracy has collapsed. So he's, he's really no different from the most wacko of the, of the Democrats uh, who, who look at it that way. But look at, at what Helga was discussing with the Peace of Westphalia. I won't repeat what she said uh, about that, but it was the, it was in a sense, this was seen uh, as the, the, the birth of the idea of sovereign nation states, because it's based on the idea that your sovereignty depends upon recognition and honoring of the sovereignty of others, the interests of others, that that was the basis on which this would take place. And this, this concept was somewhat built into the UN Charter. Uh, it was emphatically adopted under the uh, something that the Chinese and the Indians first established in 1954, Zhou Enlai from China and Nehru in India established what they called the Pancasila, or the, the five principles of peaceful coexistence. And then the next year, the, the famous Bandung Conference in Indonesia, which was the meeting of Asian and African formerly colonized nations meeting for the first time without their colonial lords uh, uh, and, and uh, established, so it was sort of the beginning of the non-aligned movement. Part of the purpose of that conference was to prevent what was then an emerging threat of a war between the U.S. and China. Uh, and Zhou Enlai and Nehru 
and Sukarno, the head of, of Indonesia, were the key leaders, uh, some from Africa, others from, from Asia. Um, and in that, they adopted officially these five principles of peaceful coexistence. And it's worth thinking about what they are, because it's really the nature of the Westphalia sovereignty idea, and it's the nature of the United Nations. The first, and you hear these terms now often, uh, the first is territor territorial integrity, that you have a sovereign nation, nobody can can uh, move and take over your territory. A non-aggression, that you will not uh, uh, launch aggression against another nation. Non-interference in internal affairs, right? Which of course is the, uh, it's the, the daily fare of the US intelligence community is interfering in other nations' internal affairs. Uh, the equality of nations, this idea that you respect the sovereignty of the other and cooperate with them. And then fifth, the idea of peaceful coexistence. So these, these ideas um, are, uh, are the basis upon which we can and we must establish a new security architecture to replace NATO. Uh, as Helga said, uh, at, at one point they were talking about Russia being part of NATO. Perhaps NATO could have sustained itself by being a truly inclusive agreement amongst all of the nations of Europe, but that, that, was, that was undermined, it's now threatened. We need a new architecture based on this idea of, uh, of, of a peaceful coexistence, and it has to be driven, as LaRouche uh, has always insisted, by that idea of economic development, that peace will only come through economic development. So we are now faced with both the complete breakdown of the Western financial system, hyperinflation kicking in, uh, to a great extent, the energy hyperinflation is driven directly by the adoption by the Western banking system of this Green New Deal, which is not something being run by AOC or any of these uh, silly children running around screaming about the environment or Al Gore and his fanaticism. It's run by the banks. It's run by Mark Carney, uh, by the people who set up a banker's cartel uh, at the Glasgow Climate Summit who basically, not, not basically, explicitly said, we don't believe governments are going to implement the policy of shutting down their fossil fuels and their economy. Therefore, we bankers will take upon ourselves the moral responsibility to save the planet from carbon by shutting down the world economy and diverting every available penny into bailing out the bankrupt banking system and funding the military buildup we need to enforce that. So this is a moment of truth where we can and must inspire optimism uh, in people of the world and especially the people of Europe and the United States who are uh, drowning in pessimism and, and degeneracy right now. Uh, I think what, what Ray had to say, what some of these others and what Lynn and Helga have to say uh, is, is the antidote to the pessimism and the destruction of the minds of our citizens that's been so drilled into them over this, this uh, systematic descent into a, a moral and cultural dark age. Uh, and again, I just say we have every reason to be optimistic and let's, uh, let's pledge ourselves to bringing that optimism while, while holding up the grave danger we're in, a moment of crisis of whether civilization itself will even survive if there were to be a nuclear war. Uh, and yet, 
Uh, it's precisely because it's so dangerous that people are looking around. They know something's gone horribly, horribly wrong. They're looking for answers. They're looking for who's been telling them the truth when everybody else was lying. <laughs> like, like Ray said about the brilliant New York Times journalists. I'm going to end by one short thing. This is the New York Times, believe it or not. But as you know, we're having a conference on Monday, uh, an emergency seminar on the extreme danger in Afghanistan. The fact that we have the threat of a genocide as, as bad or maybe even worse than Hitler carried out in his, uh, in his death camps and in his wars. Uh, believe it or not, the New York Times lead editorial this morning was, quote, let innocent Afghans have their money. And I, the way it's worded, I won't go through the whole thing right here, but the way it's worded is clear that somebody at the New York Times realized that this genocide is so obvious that if they don't uh, turn around from what they've been doing, which is basically peddling uh, just as they did with, with the war policy, uh, the idea that we uh, can and should punish the Taliban, uh, they realized that this would be hanging on their heads and somebody got through to them and said, you better, you better turn that around. So they did. Uh, not, not fully, not completely. It's still somewhat self-serving. But they did uh, note that if we don't release the money that we've sequestered, if we don't allow the Central Bank of Afghanistan to have their money uh, then we're going to be faced with personal responsibility for mass murder, the mass murder of somewhere in the range of 20 to 24 million people uh, over this, this winter where people have no money. And their editorial says, malnourished children with withered arms have been arriving at clinics in Afghanistan for months. Uh, doctors, nurses, teachers, and other essential government workers haven't been paid in months, and it's not clear when they will. Uh, targeted financial sanctions, they say, of course, they defend their sanctions policies. Targeted financial sanctions are an appropriate and powerful tool to punish bad actors and odious regimes. The mere threat of them can achieve results, but too often their cumulative effect over time is indistinguishable from collective punishment. And of course, they're guilty of collective punishment in case after case after case of these 20 years of, of mass warfare. But nonetheless, they're saying this has got to stop. Uh, they have uh, excuses about why the Fed can't release the money, but they say we can get the money released from Europe and we can, they interview our friend Shah Marabi, the head of the central bank uh, or on the board of the central bank in Afghanistan. So uh, things are moving, our, our mobilization, our emergency conferences, our pulling together of people on this Afghan crisis, our committee on the coincidence of opposites, uh, and the statement by Dr. Elders that uh, humanity comes first in the case of, of uh, Afghanistan. We have to release these funds and immediately launch a development program. This is having an effect. And again, there's reason to be optimistic if we're willing to give our our, our full heart and soul to this fight for uh, the fate of, of mankind. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. And I'll just say to both of you and Ray, we are, what we're going to do here, I've got three questions, which I think I'm going to pose. Uh, that will sort of give us a sort of arc of time. You'll know that there's three. Uh, and Ray's got something. Go ahead. Right. Go ahead, Ray. Well, I just wanted to uh, 
just wanted to comment on, on one of the points that Mike made, and that could be well elaborated on because it's the most important new factor in the equation, and that is China. Now, Biden has had a bad experience. Uh, his advisors told him before the June 16 summit that the Russians and the Chinese, they had this big long border and they had a clashes on the border and China's so big that it must be threatening Russia. And, and so what Biden said to Putin and we know this because Biden said this before he got on the plane coming home, Russia is being squeezed by China. They have this long, long border and, uh, and, and Russia knows that China's not only gonna the, be the biggest economic power, but the biggest military power. So the Russians have a lot of cause to worry about China. Now, that's 180 degrees away from the current situation. It might have been true in the textbooks that Jake Sullivan and Blinken read 40 years ago, but it's not true now. Never, never ever have China and Russia been so close. So consider Putin coming away from the summit, saying to his associates, my God, <laughs> these guys don't know what ends up. They don't know how strong we Russians really are. Why? Because China will back us up in the vernacular. China's got our back. So, so how do we how do we show them that? Okay. Next summit, what was it? Uh, December seventh. Uh, Putin reads Biden the riot act. He says. You got you got the you got our relationship with China completely screwed up. We're very very close. As a matter of fact, in one week, I'm going to be talking with President Xi of China, uh, a virtual thing. Tune in because because you'll see you'll see how close we are. <laughs> so, a week later, on the fifteenth, I think it was, uh, there's this virtual thing between uh, Putin and Xi. And uh, it, they released the first minute of it, which was choreographed exactly the way they wanted it. Okay, and this is what happened. Putin, thank you so much for the invitation to get together. And I just wish it were in person, my good friend, uh, because, well, I look forward to meeting you in Beijing uh, to begin the Olympics on February 4th. I look, then we will be in person and we can discuss things as we usually do. Um, witness the fact that, I mean, in parents here, the U.S. had just declared that it would not go to the Olympics and it's not going to have any official presence there. Okay, Others followed suit. Okay, so what does Z say? Z says, my friend, my friend Vladimir Putin, thank you very much. Um, this is the 36th, the 36th time we've met one-on-one -on -one physically or bilaterally in the last couple of years. I look forward to these discussions. Um, what I really appreciate is 
what you, Russia, have done to support our core interests, core interests, okay? And, uh, and also, you've been really good about preventing others from driving a wedge between Russia and China. Uh, just, just be assured that we, China, will support your core interests in the West, just the way you have supported our core interests here. And then Ushakov, who's the prime representative, prime advisor to Putin, tells the press, you know, the way these two describe their relationship as something that exceeds, something that's bigger than or higher than uh, a, a, a treaty or a defense alliance in terms of its closeness and in terms of its effectiveness. It exceeds an alliance. I've checked out the Russian and Chinese words. That's the word they use. So, you know, if, if Biden and his advisors, uh, you know, he brought in the clowns, but at least they're getting educated. If they didn't get the message from that, then they never, well, they did get the message from that. That was on the 15th of December when uh, Putin insisted that Putin and Biden talk on the 30th, uh, Biden had been educated. And what Putin is really saying is, look, uh, you know, even your military, I think, should be aware of or shy away from the prospect of a two-front war on opposite sides of the world. China's got our back, and that's real. Bottom line here, what has helped Putin to be so assertive? Uh, and his people, like Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, to be so assertive? Well, because <laughs> it really is two against one now, unlike the situation that existed under Nixon, where we successfully played one off against the other. Then their relationship was very thorny. Now it could not be closer. And that's not pretense. That's real. Now, one other thing I'll just tuck in here is that it empowers our allies to, or empowers uh, what reaction our allies get when they make silly statements like German Defense Secretary Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, who said, look, you, you, you Russians are willing to use military force. That's where we're moving our, our troops up to into Ukraine and elsewhere. And uh, so uh, what did Shoigu say? He says, you know, you're probably too young to remember, but the last time German troops moved up to our border, uh, it, it, really, it really didn't end well. So please go uh, study your history book. There is a new assertiveness. It's well founded. And I just hope that those sophomores that are rising juniors, juniors now, that Biden has advising him will read more, will read more current textbooks or, or maybe even some articles from you guys and from me. Thanks. I'm very glad you raised that, uh, Ray. Actually, uh, because one of the first questions uh, pretty much prompts that. Um, I think before we go to this question, if we could have one visual, which is the uh, map, and maybe either Mike or Ray will have a comment. This is a map of Kazakhstan, as we're seeing, but the general area. 
I'm just pointing this up here, Ray, because of what you referenced concerning the issue of borders. It doesn't show the whole Chinese border, but it does show something about an area people have just heard about in the world. And of course, uh, one of the things that should be noted is uh, Kazakhstan. And then, of course, you see Afghanistan on the map. The question we have is actually about Afghanistan. I'll ask that, but I suspect that either of you may have a more expansive answer. And I'm going to relieve the graphic just for the moment, just so that, uh, you know, people have can get that in their mind. It's always better with particularly an American audience if they can see uh, this. Uh, put the graphic back up because I want this to be heard while I'm asking the question. So the question comes from. Uh, one of our people uh, who reports the following. She says, Helga Zepp, this is Anastasia. She reports that Helga Zepp LaRouche just had an awesome class and discussion. This was during our meeting as we began here. It, it ended with some 80 plus youth from around the world who are ready to fight for Operation Ibn Sina. I'll say a bit about what that is in a minute. How can we combine the NATO slash Russia crisis with the Ibn Sina initiative? So this refers to Afghanistan. Um, and it's an initiative that Helga has discussed concerning the possibility of addressing the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, but from the standpoint of a kind of new participation between the United States, China, Russia, and of course the actors surrounding Afghanistan. You see there on your map, uh, Iran on the west, Pakistan on the east, and then you see a series of <clears throat> what are sometimes called the Stan countries, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajik Tajikistan. But of course, we've just heard in the news about Kazakhstan and something that's just happened there. I'll say that the concept of what was being discussed about Operation Ibn Sina, Ibn Sina was a, um, was a physician and philosopher generally from Southwest Asia, the Afghanis claim him, the Iranians claim him, a lot of people claim him. But importantly, as a physician and as a great philosophical thinker, the idea was to invoke something from the culture of the area uh, mm. and a figure, a personage, so that when talking about any kind of humanitarian relief, you're invoking a person from the area itself. You're not just talking about outside intervention and more importantly, actually, a new form of collaboration. This as a kind of process of a new strategic alliance. So um, so I just wanted that map up and whatever comment either of you would have on what can be done on the Afghanistan situation. Maybe I'll start with you, Mike, just because we just heard from Ray and then let Ray pick it up. Yeah, actually, I, I wanted to respond to Ray uh, by addressing the Kazakhstan issue, because uh, as as Ray was making fun of the geopoliticians, uh, you know, who talk about <laughs> including Biden's gaffe about uh, Russia and China being uh, being opposed uh, in some way. The Kazakhstan thing is being portrayed by many of the Western geopolitical writers as, oh, China's very worried about this because Russia used this. Uh, this crisis to step in there and, and now Russia is going to be taking over an area where China is, has got its interests and nothing could be further from the truth. This was another example of the extremely close cooperative uh, operation between Russia and China based on principle, based on principle. This is what's important. This is not just alliances of nations ganging up against people they see as their enemies. 
the old British imperial idea that when there's uh, three powers and you want to defeat one, you ally with your enemy who happens to be opposed to another enemy and then you crush them and then you have another alliance to crush the other. This is geopolitics, constant conflict, zero, zero uh, sum relationships, which deny that there's a common aim to mankind. The relationship between Russia and China right now is based on the principle of peace through development. Uh, so what happened in Kazakhstan? Remember that the Russians' concern with the collapse of the uh, occupation forces in Afghanistan, uh, they're working with the Taliban, but they're not, they're not agreeing to recognize them officially and so on, because they have a very real concern about the existing uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS-type uh, formations that still exist in Afghanistan, that they will come across the borders into the, into the uh, Central Asian countries. Now, what happened in Kazakhstan? They tried to run another Maidan, another 2014 Maidan coup, a different predicate somewhat, but it was done based on economic uh, crisis, uh, the National Endowment for Democracy spent a million dollars last year. The George Soros Open Society spent three and a half million dollars last year organizing uh, the NGO Color Revolution forces to go out in the street and create chaos uh, over some economic or other uh, slight. And that was done, but then within, within about 48 hours of this, when they doubled the price of, of gas and therefore some of these Soros type came out in the street, uh, you then had very highly trained armed terrorists, some of whom came from Afghanistan, some from Syria, uh, and uh, who intervened into the mobs uh, with uh, high-powered rifles, with their private communication capacities, uh, attacked buildings, attacked the media. They took over the TV stations. They took over the airport. This is what a coup does. They burn down government buildings. Uh, and how did, uh, how did Takayev respond? Well, he immediately called in the uh, CSTO forces, the Russians. And the Russians immediately deployed significant numbers of forces into the, into the street uh, basically shut the thing down overnight. It took a few days at most. Now, what, what's going on in Kazakhstan? Kazakhstan is the key transport route for the new Silk Road, All right? The, the Russians, uh, excuse me, the Chinese already built a major pipeline that comes from the Caspian right straight through Kazakhstan into China, uh, which is delivering huge amounts of oil to, to China. So they obviously have that to protect. Then when they decided to build their new Silk Road economic belt, uh, it goes, the main route goes right straight through Kazakhstan before it goes into, into Europe and Turkey and, and uh, all, the way to, all the way to Europe, right? And they have this uh, dry port at the border of China and Kazakhstan, which is this incredible place that takes 4,000 trains per year that are now, now going back and forth between, between China and Europe that go through this dry port, they have to switch gauges. They have these incredible mechanisms which move the containers from one gauge train to the other in a record time. Uh, so this, this is a strategically crucial part of this new Silk Road transformation of the economies. And I won't go into the, there were difficulties in Kazakhstan, a lot of corruption and 
in the ruling circles around Nazarbayev and, and other problems. But the point is the potential for their development as a very lightly populated, but huge country, which also has Russia's uh, space port. It also has their missile training sites are in Kazakhstan that the Russians use. They have uranium that is uh, that is processed in Russia and then sent back in to be turned into to a nuclear plant fuel. These are totally Russia-China cooperative operations to transform the world in the areas where, especially those areas in which they, they are, their neighboring areas. So, uh, yeah, this is true. Now, uh, on Afghanistan, uh, of course, you also have uh, the fact that the Uyghurs uh, in, in Xinjiang in China, uh, as, as well, what people hear all the time is that, you know, the, the Chinese are committing genocide against the Uyghurs. This is just such an abomination that it's, it's almost not worth refuting. The population of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang is, has nearly doubled. Their standard of living has nearly doubled since uh, since uh, China began focusing on developing the poorest parts of the country and in lifting 700, 800 million people out of poverty, a good number of those were the very, very poor Uyghur uh, people in Xinjiang who have been lifted up, educated, given jobs. Uh, and this is called genocide by Mike Pompeo. <laughs> They deal with they deal with their terrorist problem by educating and and getting employment to the young people who otherwise are dragged off into terrorist operations because the U.S. is dropping bombs on their mothers' homes. Uh, I think that's the proper way to see it. But these networks were came out of uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, and of course there are still areas of terrorist training and terrorist networks within Afghanistan. It's not going to be cleaned up overnight even though the Taliban is fighting them in most cases. Uh, so th this had, uh, uh, for both Russia and China, the issue of the Islamic movements within the Islamic culture are crucial. Now, what has Helga done by, by launching this, uh, this uh, project, Ibn Sina? Um, this is not something that came up just out of the blue. Helga studied this for many, many, many years, she's written extensively about the golden age of, of Islam. She's written about Ibn Sina in particular. Uh, and she knows that this is a beloved figure in the Islamic world. My interview with Graham Fuller, the former uh, CIA uh, station chief, actually, in Kabul and, and, and stationed all over the Islamic world, very much a, an Islamic scholar, uh, himself made the point that there is absolutely no reason that you could not have another golden age of Islam. Uh, it's most likely going to come as part of what, what Lynn and Helga always argued, which is that you're not going to have a localized renaissance anymore. We have to have a global renaissance in which each culture uh, pulls out the best moments of its history. The the Christian renaissance or the European renaissance, the Islamic Renaissance during the Baghdad Caliphate, the Confucian Renaissance in the Sung Dynasty, uh, and and other, similar things in Africa and elsewhere. This is what can and must happen. So this Ibn Sina project is, of course, it's aimed at stopping genocide in Afghanistan. It's aimed at bringing modern health facilities to Afghanistan and, and in fact, every nation on earth. 
but it also is crucial to getting people to think in terms of why we, non-Muslims, have to understand who Ibn Sina was and is today to the Islamic community internationally, but also that we have to internalize that in our hearts with the sense of the peace of Westphalia, that we have to understand the Confucian Renaissance and Jushi uh, in the Sung Dynasty in China. We have to understand the uh, what went on during the, the Golden Age of Islam and, and embrace it as part of what we do by embracing the Platonic period and in the Augustinian era, and especially the work of Nicholas of Cusa and, and, uh, and uh, Schiller and so forth, uh, and Leibniz. These, this is the basis on which we have to look at every one of these crisis moments as a moment that can change history as a whole. Uh, Ray, if you have a response to that, and if you don't, I've got two questions for you. So, Now, let me just uh, make a, a quick remark about the strategic significance of Kazakhstan. Uh, I think you're showing that map was a really good idea. Not many people know where Kazakhstan is. Now they do. Uh, sits atop uh, the other uh, stuns. And uh, needless to say, there still is a ther terrorist threat, as Mike has elucidated quite clearly. And so uh, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the border between Kazakhstan and Russia is, most people say, the longest contiguous border in the world. Look at it. <laughs> It's pretty ragged, and it goes for a long way. Now, also look in the middle on the left there, the Caspian Sea. What's there? There in the Caspian Sea are deposits of natural gas that exceed by far all the oil deposits in Iraq in value, all of them. That's where the Tapi pipeline was going to come from, near Tapi, Turkmenistan, Notice Turkmenistan there in the pink. Um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, a little slice of India, and then out into the, into the ocean. And who is going to take care of all that? Enron. <laughs> so that was a totally corrupt enterprise from the beginning, but that accounted in many ways for uh, Bush Jr. and other interests in, uh, in that toppy. Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Enron uh, pipeline. Never happened, of course. But the riches there are considerable. Now, uranium, Mike mentioned that. That's incredibly important for anybody who's working with nuclear m materials. So, so the strategic significance of Kazakhstan is in many ways more, more important than Ukraine in terms of natural resources not in terms of strategic importance, but, uh, I, you know, when people try to overthrow governments like that, uh, the prompt response of uh, the head of uh, Kazakhstan in Almaty and getting the Russians in there, and then, you know, the naive response from my friend Blinken there, for Antony Blinken, uh, oh, once the Russians come in, uh, you'll never get them out of there. 
Well, as Mike also mentioned, they're out of there or they're getting out of there. So again, I think Mike is quite right in saying that is a, a success that Russia can, can crow about. And they're going to watch it very closely because this in its own way is a very critical strategic area. will also be pertinent to you, Mike, but, um, uh, and we'll, uh, we have a couple maps we'll also reference here, but first one is from Cade, and it is, um, thank you for these wonderful analyses of the current situation. My question is to Mr. McGovern. It does seem like we may have moved a few inches away from a new Cuban missile crisis. The Schiller Institute's recent interview with Director General of the Russian International Affairs Council, Andrei Korchunov, also pointed toward a uh, thrust from, uh, trust from Russia put into Biden individually as a negotiator. But what about, let's say, the potential for a new Bay of Pigs? The prospect of rogue elements outside of Biden's control, such as those training Ukrainian paramilitaries to, quote, kill Russians, as Yahoo News reported yesterday, inciting either of the false flag scenarios mentioned or any other operation. So that's one question asking about rogue elements outside of Biden's control. I'm putting them together just both for time and also because they relate. The second question, which is to both, is, uh, this is kind, and he says, it is quite a relief to hear that there were some positive developments from the talks that took place between Russia and the United States. The fact that Biden has taken seriously Putin's concerns about the deployment of nuclear weapons on Russia's border and as uh, so on, it goes on, is, is important. This also coincides with another very significant development which took place in which the leaders of the UN Security Council affirmed that a nuclear war could never be won and should never be fought. That's the P5, I think he's referring to here, uh, permanent five. Why is it that the media isn't actually reporting on these developments? What do they gain from portraying Russia in this malicious way? And by saying that nothing significant happened in these talks. So those are the two questions. Yeah. Well, uh, let me. I'm sorry. Do you want to go first, Mike? No, no, no. I said go to it. This is perfect for you. <laughs> okay. No, it's, uh, you know, the first question I discussed a little bit about these false flag things and these operations. You know, our intelligence services have lots of money. And if it's not spent, they won't get as much next year. And, you know, sometimes there are cockamamie ideas, but you know, let's say, well, maybe they succeed and you get really, really fastly promoted. So what? what's what's to prevent i mean who's going to be held accountable it's all secret right <laughs> so none of that can be dismissed is biden fully in control the answer is no if he told bill burns the head of the cia you make sure that those cia nicks don't cause any trouble for us in the border area between ukraine and russia and uh, bill burns said yes sir would they do it anyway my guess is, of course they would. Bill Burns is not in control either. These guys with the money are in control, and they have all these assets, and they want to use them, all right? So that's the problem, and Putin knows that better than McGovern knows it because he's been kind of mousetrapped in this way before, namely uh, the ceasefire in Syria, which blew up in, in the face of Putin and Obama each when the U.S. Air Force decided to violate it 
a, a brief week after it had been concluded after negotiations of 11 months. The other thing here is, uh, okay, the, the UN Security Council, uh, that was really nice. No one can win a nuclear war, right? Well, that's what uh, Putin and Biden said at the end of their June 16 uh, uh, summit. They issued a statement, no one weighs, it's the same as we remember with Reagan and Gorbachev, no one can win a nuclear war. That doesn't really matter. What matters is what Mike mentioned before. Admiral Thomas Richards, who puts his finger on the button. He's a strategic air command, used to be called SAC, right? Those guys, they're real patriots, you know? And they're not gonna let the Russians uh, uh, do anything bad to us. And you know, Richards has never rescinded his notion that, you know, nuclear war, nuclear might be possible, okay. Has Biden told him to shut up? No, he hadn't told him to shut up. And so what is Putin looking at? He's looking at a very variegated command structure. Uh, in Russia, they have what they call Yedin Nachalya, okay? Yedin, Adin is one. Nachalya, leadership in one person. Everyone knows Putin is in control, and I think that's a good thing, okay? In our country, well, you have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff telling the Chinese late last, late year before, uh, look, if, if Trump tells me to attack you, I probably won't do it, you know? I mean, what the hell is that? I mean, it may be a good thing in the vast scheme of things, but what conclusions does Putin and uh, Shoigu, his defense minister, draw from this kind of, let's call it, insubordination? So all I'm saying is here that, that the situation is much more, much more itsy-kitsy than anyone realizes when you look from the Kremlin and you see that despite all these statements uh, and they come, come fast and furious, uh, the guys in charge, um, you know, there, there is, if you read Daniel Ellsberg's book on the doomsday machine, you'll see that the executive authority to authorize nuclear weapons devolved into some of the smallest units you could ever imagine. I don't know if it's better now, uh, but neither does Putin. And that's the point. It's got to be really careful. We, we may be dealing with the, one of that, that kind of uh, Sterling Hayden, Colonel Jack Ripper, and uh, Slim Pickens, uh, King Kong, Colonel Kong situation. Let's hope not. All right. I want, what I want to do here is to, again, go to some maps. And I want to respond sort of sort of coming to the conclusion here, but I'd, I'd like to do this for the audience's sake. I'm going to show uh, three maps of NATO. There's NATO in 1990, so this is 32 years ago. Those were the NATO boundaries when the U.S. promised it would not expand one inch eastward. That was James Baker speaking to Gorbachev. Uh, all right, let's go to the next one. 2019, 29 <laughs> years later, okay? Flip back to 1990 for a moment so people can get the idea here. All right, and then 2019. 
All right, and then NATO in 2021. This is the the these are the proposed expanded NATO boundaries. All right, so I think that's clear enough. Uh, let's go to the final image, uh, Jose, which is uh, the larger map. Now, this one, of course, shows what is sometimes referred to as the Eurasian heartland, but more importantly, can perhaps uh, assist everybody, having seen the map of Kazakhstan, having seen earlier the map of NATO expansion, just to get kind of a sense of the entirety of what we're talking about. There you're seeing that the, uh, the border between Russia and China there in the east this is what uh, Biden was referring to. Of course, you see the Kazakhstan border, uh, which was already discussed, discussed a moment ago by Ray, uh, and so on. And so having shown these maps, uh, I just like to get sort of uh, a view. Uh, here's my question, essentially. How can people conquer uh, the sort of fragmented picture that is, uh, you know, of source supplied by media and so on, but also supplied by bad education in part, to, to think about how these world leaders are required to think about strategic matters. What we are also talking about here is a higher security architecture. How would you approach that kind of a thing? And, and how can we, as citizens, um, uh, think about or play a role in thinking about this in such a fashion as to call these people to account? It's a large question, but I thought I would leave it, put it out there and let each of you sort of give me your sense of it. So, Mike, why don't we start with you and see what, what you have to say? Yeah, I, I agree. This is this is key. Um, you know, what Ray said a minute ago about the president doesn't run things is absolutely true. This was just as true with Trump as as with Biden. You know, Trump ordered the military to get out of Syria and they told him to go to hell. Um, he uh, he said, we're going to be friends with Russia and they run the run the Russia gate thing against him. And he, he basically capitulates uh, same thing with China. He was friends with China, but then they, you know, Pompeo and company made up this line about um, uh, about China gave us the coronavirus and, and Trump needed somebody to blame or whatever reason. So, I mean, he, he clearly didn't run things. He wanted to rebuild the U.S. industry. But what did Wall Street do? They kept bailing out the banks. So so he failed in everything he said he was going to do, which is why he was uh, voted in by a population that was delighted to hear that we're going to be friends with Russia. We're going to rebuild the economy. We're going to end these damn wars. We're going to get out of this climate change hoax. You know, all of those things. And none of it happened. Uh, this is absolutely true with Biden. Is that is that reason to be demoralized? I must say that a lot of the people I talk to uh, feel demoralized for the reasons I was saying before. They think there's no leader who can do anything. Well, in a sense, that's true. But what I've talked about this before, LaRouche always emphasized the institution of the presidency as more important than the president per se. That uh, uh, sometimes a president plays a crucial role in the institution of the presidency, but really it's the institution of those who are part of governing, uh, including people in Congress and the intelligence community, the private sector, and individuals like Lyndon LaRouche or, or Ray McGovern, who's no longer official in, in uh, a government agency. But, you know, the, in other words, citizens who take responsibility 
for their nation and for the world. That really is the institution of the presidency. So what does that say to the American people? It, it says it's up to us. That, like I said before, there's a tremendous reason for optimism in the midst of this descent into a dark age that because it's so damn serious, people are looking around for answers and for leadership. Uh, I've said many times, when I first met Lynn in, in late 1971, he, he said people aren't going to want to hear my warnings that Nixon's pulling the dollar off of gold and ending the Bretton Woods system is going to lead to depressions and hyperinflation and pandemics and wars. Uh, but when it happens, we better be there to lead because people are going to look around to see who was telling the truth when everybody else was lying. And so this is an, a, a wonderful moment for the for the individual. I think it answers the question about the individual rights and the common good. You know, you have this horrible problem in America where think people think individual rights are the right to be anarchistic and say, I, I refuse to do what I'm being told to do because I'm American, you know. Well, in, the, the, the importance of the individual uh, is in their capacity to affect the good. This is Platonism. This is the American founding fathers. Uh, and at a moment like this, people have an opportunity to do the good, which is to change the descent into hell that the world is going through right now, the Western world in, uh, in particular, uh, and to act in a way that we make sure that this very interesting potential that's emerged that Ray and I discussed uh, coming out of these this last week, that this does go in the right direction, that it does not collapse into Admiral Richards pushing the button, uh, but that it's going to depend really on us. You don't get demoralized about the fact that Biden doesn't run things. You take a good that he has put forward with Putin, largely because of Putin's uh, direction on this, but it, you, you take that as the basis on which this is what we fight for. Uh, that's what we fought for with Trump, that if he had succeeded in doing what he said he was going to do, uh, he, he would have won the election with or without vote fraud, you know, but he didn't. Uh, and the same thing is true here. We don't just sit back and say, gee, I hope Biden can do it. We fight like hell to get the American people to understand that there is an opening here which is going to depend upon how the American people act uh, in conjunction, especially with our friends in Russia and in China. Okay, fine. Ray? Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be on with you. Uh, I would put my, my gloss on this this way. Uh, things change. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's an advantage being as so old as I am. Uh, you see a lot of change. When I was working as my first job at CIA as an analyst, it was to analyze the Sino-Soviet dispute to convince people that the Chinese and the Soviets hated each other with a passion and that we could take advantage of it, okay? Now, I thought, most of my colleagues thought, that this would be forever the case, that they would hate each other from, from previous movies. They had irredenta, they had everything. Uh, and all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, actually, we watched it gradually dissipate to the point where no, no two allies have been ever closer, and this is the reality. So what am I saying? I'm saying that things change. Now, 
I think we have to leave open the possibility that people will change too, and that there is a common enemy here. When the Chinese and the Soviets hated each other, the, com the common enemy was the United States, but the United States took advantage of this, okay? And uh, now uh, the common enemy is twofold, climate change. I have 10 grandchildren. I care about this, okay? Climate change and the pandemic. We have to do something about all that. Now, one has to allow for the fact that more progressive people, less bound to the Mickey mat, will, will eventually come to the fore and recognize that, you know, it's over for all of us if we don't so, do something about climate change and reigning in pandemics. And then, then comes individual initiative where people will come together uh, individually at first, but without fear and do what is necessary uh, I would finish with uh, my, my favorite theologian, Annie Dillard, who said, uh, who, who shall ascend to the mountain? Uh, who shall do the work for us? There is only us. There never has been any other. So let's put our nose to the grindstone. Thanks. Yeah, and thank you very much, Ray. I want to just say also at this point, this has been, uh, and several people are writing to me to say this, there's been a particularly both stimulating and informative discussion. Um, and and uh, uh, it's also important to say, uh, and, I'll, and I, I'm, in this case, I'm going to explain why I'm saying this, that the opinions expressed here are not necessarily ones on which everybody agrees, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. Let me repeat that. It's going to be very important uh, in particularly a United States that has become so sclerotic, if you want to put it, intellectually sclerotic, that you rarely get uh, uh, a, 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 form, a forum in which people can discuss ideas, um, that people get used to the notion of changing their view and of thinking about matters in a, uh, from a different standpoint. You know, it's fine or it's not so fine, but it can, I guess, be tolerable when people find themselves in what they call factional positions. But really, actually, a lot of these are the product of advertising, product of media. They're not even opinions that people have formed. Um, I'm saying that just because for uh, not only viewers, but for anybody that uh, that are watching right now, but in the future, this is exactly what we all are trying to pursue at this point in our nation. Uh, it's an important that is a, a, a get a platform whereby which we can actually not only talk about these things, but recognize that in the dispute comes wisdom. Uh, it's it's the uh, uh, we quoted at the top of this, uh, Ray, uh, the uh, uh, Martin Luther King sermon, A Knock at Midnight. And, uh, you know, we, we took the biblical verse first uh, and referred to that, uh, but where uh, the point, the point of the of the verse and the point of the discussion, uh, is that um, you you have it's Luke, uh, I think that's uh, two six I think, and the idea is that uh, you have a a knock on the door. Actually, Jose, if you have that graphic, put it up for a minute. I'll just read it again. Yes, uh, and I 
Okay, let me get there. And he said unto them, which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, friend, get, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine in his journey is come to me and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, trouble me not. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. See that, what's this idea? The idea is that if you're persistent to the point of annoyance, is that literally what it is, right? If you knock, the door will open. And, and although it's the case that people may be uh, set or, or apparently fixed, it's possible to actually open the door of someone else's mind uh, and make that change. I think it's significant for us to think about that. And, and, and Americans today are going to have to uh, think about it that way, I think, as well. Uh, so I want to thank you, Ray McGovern, and you, Mike Billington, for being with us today. We're going to conclude our, uh, our show today. And actually, what we have for conclusion is um, the audio track of some reflections on Martin Luther King, uh, which came from Lyndon LaRouche. He delivered these in 2004 down in Talladega, Alabama, brought down there by the civil rights leader uh, and uh, also at that time, vice president of the Schiller Institute, Amelia Boynton Robinson, who, uh, of course, been the person that had invited Dr. King to Selma. And this was the occasion of a, of a, of a dinner, of a breakfast, rather, uh, with some people in Alabama, uh, of which uh, LaRouche had spoken. And we're going to just uh, conclude today with his reflections. We have two problems, I think, which should be the basis for reflecting on Martin's life today. One, we have a national crisis. Now, I'm not going to mince words, and I'm not going to do any political hacking, but the facts have to be told. This economy is collapsing. The situation, relatively speaking, in terms of basic economic infrastructure of the United States today is worse than in 1933 when Roosevelt came into the White House in March. That is, you look around you, infrastructure, energy, so forth, the conditions of life of our people around the world, and don't look in the big cities where they put on a facade and say things are fine. Look in the, in the communities. For example, Detroit now has half the population it used to have. An industrial city is gone. Look around Birmingham. You see how the same thing is reported. It was never rich. But the, their sense of loss, of loss, of loss of this and that. That's the situation in the United States. We are in trouble. And look at the world. The world faces a great crisis. And the United States faces a great crisis in dealing with the world. The largest concentrations of population of the world are China, for example, 1.3 billion or more. India, over 1 billion. Then you have Pakistan, Bangladesh, and the countries of Southeast Asia. This is the greatest concentration of population on this planet. It's an emerging part of the world. The question is, what's the relationship of the United States to these people of Asia, 
who represent, in by and large, different cultural backgrounds than those of us in the United States or in Western Europe. How are we going to find peace in a troubled world? How are we going to find reconciliation in a troubled world with, with countries which have turned against us because of the war policies of Cheney and some others? So we, face, we do not face a new problem today, in, the, in one sense. We face the same problem, in principle, that Martin faced. And faced successfully. And I would propose that in the lesson of Martin Luther King and his life, there is something we can learn today, which brings him back to life as if he was standing here alive today. There's something special about his life, his development, which should be captured today by us, not only in addressing the problems of our nation, which are becoming terrible, but the problems of our relationship with the world as a whole. How are we going to deal with these cultures that are different than our own? With an Asian culture, with Muslim cultures around the world, one over a billion Muslims around the world. With the culture of China, which is different than ours. The culture of Southeast Asia, which is different than ours. The cultural background. They're all human. They all have the same ultimate requirements, the same needs. But they're different cultures. They think differently. They respond to different predicates than we respond to. But we must have peaceful cooperation with these people to solve a world problem. Then you start thinking about someone like Martin. And I want to indicate in the context I just stated what the significance of Martin is today. We had no replacement for Martin. Lesson number one. Martin was a unique personality. He was not a talented person who happened to stumble into leadership and could be easily replaced by other leaders who would learn the job and take over afterward. We had no replacement. No one in the position to replace him. Many wished to be, they didn't have it. So, this is the problem. We have a population, we have a world, in which there's a shortage of people who actually understand fully the meaning of the difference between man and beast. That man is a creature, as defined by Genesis 1, is made in the likeness of the creator of the universe. This is us. We all, because of we transmit these ideas, because we transmit this work as no animal can, we love one another. We love the people who come before us. We love those who are coming after us. We care for them in a very selfish way. Because in our spending our talent of life, our sense of beauty depends upon what was coming out of our life in future generations. We love children for that reason. They're our children. We love grandchildren even more than children sometimes. Because that, that's, you know, that's, oh, our children were able to produce these children. That's great. I mean, you love them specially, and, and particularly a, a person become a grandparent. They love these grandchildren especially for that reason. So this kind of loving is, is lacking generally in the population and leaders. Martin obviously had that. Martin was one of the rare people in his time who had a deep sense of what it is to be a human being. Who had a deep sense of the lesson 
of the passion and crucifixion of Christ. And was able to bring to politics, which he didn't go in to get in as politics as such. He was a, a natural leader. The natural leader is one who comes not from the political process as such, but from the people. Martin never achieved political office. Yet he was probably as important a figure of the United States as, as any modern president. He achieved that. His authority as a leader came from the people. He fought against the people and with the people to free them.